We're in the second week of our study through the book of Genesis. And the first few chapters are going to take us a while to get through because they cover some of the biggest issues that affect life, the credibility of the Bible, and quite frankly, everything. The good news is that it's going to be a fascinating journey. Last week, we were reminded that while there is a wealth of evidence for the existence of God, the Bible tells us there are two specific evidences for his existence that are sufficient. In other words, they are enough evidence to help even the man in the jungle who's never heard the name Jesus recognize that there is a God. Those two pieces of evidence are the observable world and universe around us, that's talked about by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, and then secondly, our inherent moral conscience. The fact that we just know some things are right and some things are wrong. Paul talks about that in Romans 2. We talked about the first evidence in detail last week and we examined things like the Kalam cosmological argument and the teleological or fine-tuning argument. This week we're gonna look at that second piece of evidence, our inherent moral conscience in greater detail. And we're also gonna look at a strange and compelling theological idea known as the gap theory. As I just said, the Apostle Paul talks about the first piece of evidence in Romans 1, and then in Romans 2, he says this about our inherent moral conscience. It's on your outlines. Follow along with me, and I'll refresh your memories from last week. Paul writes, for when Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who do not have the law, so they don't have access to the law of God or the scriptures, by nature, and I had everyone underline by nature, that means instinctively, do the things in the law, these although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts. And if you don't have it underlined from last week, underline their conscience also bearing witness. And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In other words, people who don't know God, people who've never read the scriptures, never read the Bible, when they instinctively know that some things are right, and they listen to that conscience in them and end up doing the things that the Bible says to do, even though they've never read the Bible, they prove God's point that he has put a moral conscience in every person, that whether you've read the Bible or not, there are certain things that you know are right and certain things you know are wrong. These are called absolute truths or absolute moral values. The concept that there are some things that are just inherently right and others that are inherently wrong. This is an evidence for the existence of God because there's no other explanation for these moral values existing across history, across race, across culture, across ethnicity, and across the world. If there is no God, then there's not really any basis for calling something good or bad or right or wrong because the issue becomes what authority are you standing on when you make that value judgment? In other words, on what basis are you calling something right or wrong? On what basis are you calling it good or bad? Without God, the only thing that you can stand on is your own opinion or the laws of the land where you live, which is just the opinion of the majority, generally. If your idea of right and wrong is based on your opinion, what makes your opinion more valuable than somebody else's? It's not. And even the law doesn't make something right or wrong. It makes it legal or illegal. Basic analysis of our own experiences tell us that our inherent moral values 
have to have been placed upon us by something outside of us. Write this down. God is quite simply the best explanation for the existence of our inherent moral conscience. God is the best explanation for the existence of our inherent moral conscience. Now, each of us can relate to the experience of ignoring the voice of God so that we can instead choose to sin. The truth is we've all done it, and sadly, we're all gonna do it again. The Bible tells us that the world is currently being run by Satan. His power is limited, but the Bible is clear that he's running the show for now. And Satan knows that if he's gonna lure people away from following Jesus, he has to help people break free of this accountability that they feel to God, even if they don't know that it's God. What I mean by that is Satan has to figure out, how do I get people to stop listening to their moral conscience because when they do that, they're actually listening to God. That's the problem Satan has to solve. So Satan came up with this philosophical system that empowered man to sin by giving man a system of belief that justifies his sinful actions. In other words, a system of belief which gives man an excuse to sin by being able to say, well, this is my philosophical belief. What system did Satan come up with? Well, firstly, he began to spread the idea of pleasure being the highest goal in life, your personal happiness. This idea has been around for thousands and thousands of years in the philosophy of hedonism, the Dionysian cults, even the pop culture of the Roman Empire where we saw things like gladiator fights, orgies, and the grotesque Roman circus because in Roman culture, pleasure was the ultimate goal. And finally, what happened is the absolute degradation of society caused the Roman Empire to collapse. It was never conquered. It simply collapsed under the weight of its own decadence and hedonism. Then Satan began building up atheism in the 19th century beginning in higher academic institutions like universities and those universities began to attack the idea of inherent moral values because after all if there is no God there's no such thing as moral responsibility it's just a social construct this is just an idea we've invented up it's just the boogeyman that our parents came up with to try and make us behave ourselves, this God. It's just a figment of our imagination. And so, true freedom, therefore, requires breaking free of these juvenile ideas of right and wrong, which are rooted in the Bible, which is really irrelevant because there is no God. And the philosophical idea of moral relativism began to emerge, the idea that what's right for you might not be right for me. All morals are actually relative to the individual, the location, the culture, and the idea began to spread that, you know, the only absolute is that there are no absolutes. And this idea is also called subjective morality. The idea is that the subject, the individual, you or me, can choose what is and is not moral, the same way that we would choose a favorite flavor of ice cream. Subjective morality says, just like I have no right to tell you that your favorite flavor of ice cream is wrong, I have no right to tell you that what you believe is right and wrong is wrong. And you have no right to tell me that what I believe is right and wrong is wrong. It's totally up to each 
individual. Their subjective moral values are. The problem was that in first world countries, most people still believed in God. The big problem was these two pieces of evidence described in Romans 1 and Romans 2. People still looked around at the created world and said, yeah, but the idea that there is no God is stupid. Like, have you looked around you? Where do you think all this stuff came from? And this idea that there's no such thing as right and wrong, like, I I just know that there is such a thing as right and wrong. So Satan couldn't really get atheism to gain traction in pop culture, in mainstream society, because these two pieces of evidence were in the way. Enter Darwinian evolution. We're gonna discuss it more in future messages, but for now I just wanna touch on the philosophical impact of Darwinian evolution on culture. And on that philosophical side of things, Darwinian evolution proclaimed us not to be creations of a loving God, not masterpieces of an intentional designer, but rather we're simply the product of random chance, which changed everything on a philosophical level. It meant that suddenly our existence, while incredibly fortuitous, was quite simply meaningless. And if all we are are the great descendants of slime, then there are no moral laws because There is no moral lawgiver. There's no standard for good or evil other than our own opinions and what evolution and our need to survive has placed inside us. And we're free to actually pursue whatever brings us the most pleasure in life. You see, Darwinian evolution was the scientific evidence needed to push the philosophy of atheism and moral relativism into the mainstream culture, and it did. And the consequences have been absolutely devastating to our culture. I don't do this for for shock value. I do this because I, I don't know a better way to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make about the effect of Darwinian evolution and atheism on the philosophical values of society. Uh, one of the most infamous serial killers of the 20th century was Ted Bundy. And you might not know this, he actually studied at the University of Washington just south, a school known for its philosophically liberal bent where he learned about moral relativism in the philosophy department of UW. And in a recorded interview after he had been arrested for his killing spree, he talked about what he would say to some of his victims when he had kidnapped them before he killed them. He referred to what he learned about philosophy and morality at UW, and this is what he said. He said, then I learned that all moral judgments are value judgments that all value judgments are just subjective and that none can be proved to be either right or wrong. I even read somewhere that the Chief Justice of the United States had written that the American Constitution expressed nothing more than collective value judgments. Believe it or not, I figured out for myself what apparently the Chief Justice couldn't figure out for himself, that if the rationality of one value judgment was zero, multiplying it by millions would not make it one whit more rational nor is there any reason to obey the law for anyone, like myself, who has the boldness and daring, the strength of character to throw off its shackles. 
I discovered that to become truly free, truly unfettered, I had to become truly uninhibited. And I quickly discovered that the greatest obstacle to my freedom, the greatest block and limitation to it, consists in the insupportable value judgment that I was bound to respect the rights of others. I asked myself, who were these others? Other human beings with human rights? Why is it more wrong to kill a human animal than any other animal, a pig, a sheep, or a steer? Is your life more to you than a hog's life to a hog? Why should I be willing to sacrifice my pleasure more for the one than for the other? Surely you would not, in this age of scientific enlightenment, declare that God or nature has marked some pleasures as moral or good and others as immoral or bad. In any case, let me assure you, my dear young lady, that there is absolutely no comparison between the pleasure I might take in eating ham and the pleasure I anticipate in raping and murdering you. That is the honest conclusion to which my education has led me after the most conscientious examination of my spontaneous and uninhibited self. Now what is most terrifying about that? It's not what he says, it's that Ted Bundy's crimes make perfect logical sense if moral relativism and atheism are true. What's most terrifying is that he's right if moral relativism and atheism are true. If morals are just individual judgments, then nothing makes your individual judgments more important than mine. You may not like my personal judgments, but you don't have any basis for calling them wrong. Because if there is no higher law or authority that I'm accountable to, then why shouldn't I just do the things that bring me the most pleasure? If there's no afterlife and this is all there is, then why wouldn't the unadulterated pursuit of pleasure be the most logical course of action for our lives? And if we really are just the result of cosmic coincidence, if we really are just a fortunate collection of evolved cells, then we don't have any claim to matter more than any other collection of cells. We really don't have any more value than a pig or a cow. Of all the people in our world who claim to believe in moral relativism or atheism, I would suggest to you that the overwhelming majority of them have simply never considered the full implications of their belief system. Because the actions of Ted Bundy are the full implications of that belief system. If they did consider the full implications of their belief system, I think most of them would be unable to continue to hold those beliefs. And then the overwhelming majority of those who really do hold to those beliefs would have to still be classified as cowards because they don't actually live their lives based on those beliefs. They still follow the rules and laws uh, that their belief system says are meaningless and worthless and a fabrication of our imaginations. They still function within the framework and expectations of a society that their belief system says is completely deluded. They're cowards, they don't actually live their life based on their beliefs. Now don't get me wrong, I'm extremely thankful they don't live out their belief system because if they did, they would have to be classified as sociopaths like Ted Bundy. If there's no God, then there are no moral absolutes, no basis for calling something right or wrong. If, if I stab you, the only moral judgment you can make is that you don't like it, but you can't actually tell me I'm doing something wrong. If there's no God and moral relativism is true, then what Hitler did in the Holocaust isn't wrong, you just don't like it. 
And if something becomes moral and right when the majority of society agrees upon it, then German citizens were doing nothing wrong when they helped the Nazis kill Jews during World War II because their society, the German society, had deemed it morally acceptable. My point is that we know those things are wrong. We know, even a child instinctively knows that all those things are wrong. And we have to lie to ourselves, we have to delude ourselves in order to believe otherwise. Write this down, the moral argument, the moral argument goes like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. However, our own experience tells us that objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. You see, the person who claims there is no God can never ever use the word injustice because there's no such thing. There's no right or wrong. It doesn't make any philosophical sense that the same people who say there is no God are upset that men in Hollywood are sexually harassing women. So what? I mean, if, if there's no God, they're using their power to get what they want. That's downright Darwinian, isn't it? Survival of the fittest. Just do what you want if you have the power to do it. Exert your dominance. But you certainly can't call what they're doing wrong if there's no God. On what basis are you calling it wrong? That they don't like it? Why does that make it wrong? Darwinian evolution doesn't have a problem with murder. As I said, it's just survival of the fittest. If you're not strong enough or smart enough to survive, then you're just dragging down the gene pool. And yet we instinctively know that's not true. We know it's not right. When a cat kills a mouse, it hasn't done anything morally wrong. So logically, if we're just animals too, then we haven't done anything wrong when we kill another person. The only way you can claim we have is to admit that we are somehow different to animals and we are somehow held to standards that animals are not. An important consequence of the moral argument is that someone can't call anything in the world evil without first acknowledging that God exists. Let me explain. You might have heard someone say this, I can't believe in God or I don't believe in God because there's too much evil in the world. Well, how are they defining anything as evil? Because to call something evil is to make a moral judgment. And you can't call something evil unless there is good to compare it to. And you can't call anything good or evil without an objective source that defines what good and evil is. Therefore, you can't actually call anything evil without first acknowledging God, a higher moral authority. One of atheism's quote-unquote, best arguments against God is actually evidence for God's existence. Make a note of this. It's impossible to call anything evil or good without objective moral laws. Objective moral laws require an objective moral law giver. Therefore, nothing can be called objectively evil apart from the existence of God. You have to call something good or evil based on something. 
So to summarize, the Bible gives two pieces of evidence as being sufficient, being enough for anyone to recognize that God exists. Those two pieces of evidence are the observable world and universe around us, Romans 1, and our inherent moral conscience, Romans 2. And while we can dig incredibly deeply into those two pieces of evidence, and you'll find that the deeper you dig, the more there is to find. We can dig deep into the philosophy of morality. We can dig deep into the incredible design that's in creation. While you can do that, don't forget that the Bible, authored by Jesus ultimately, tells us that even at the most basic level, those two pieces of evidence are enough to prove the existence of God. So here's what this means. According to the Bible, you don't need to be able to look at DNA under a microscope to see a designer. You just need to be able to look at the stars at night and the world around you. That's it. You don't need to understand the intricacies of the moral argument. You just need to be honest with yourself that you know some things are right and some things are wrong. You know. Romans 1 and 2 are talking about that sort of basic simple level observation and honesty with oneself. And they say that even at that basic level, it's enough evidence in God's opinion, which is really the only opinion that counts, to recognize that he exists, that he exists. God is the only one who's gonna judge us and hold us responsible for recognizing him. And so when he says that's enough evidence, it's enough evidence. And I share that with you because I want us to know that even though we can dig deep, deep, deep into this stuff, when, when someone says there's not enough evidence for God's existence for me, they're making a conscious choice within themselves to reject God. They're choosing not to see what is obvious. The issue is not a lack of evidence. The issue is a hard heart toward God. And when you encounter someone who has that kind of hard heart, your response should not be, I need to go do some reading. I need to really learn up and brush up my intellect on all the stuff about science and the Bible and creation and design and deep philosophical arguments for morality and ethics. You don't need to do that because according to Romans 1 and 2, the issue is not evidence. The issue is a hard heart. And only the grace of God can change a hard heart. So what you need to do is you need to pray for that person. You need to pray for them. Because there's not very many people who would say, well, you know what, I just finally got the piece of evidence that was good enough and then I started believing. You know, even atheists who, who turn to Christ, what they talk about is they just say, it didn't matter how much evidence people gave me and then one day, something just changed. My heart changed, it softened toward the Lord and suddenly I could see clearly. And it's not because they finally met the person who had the perfect, articulate, accurate argument. It's because people were praying for them and God broke through into their heart. So when you encounter that, don't be intimidated. Don't worry about getting into an intellectual debate. Pray for them, that's what they need, that's what's gonna make a difference more than anything. Well, we have arrived at verse two. It reads, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There is a fascinating conjecture called the gap theory, 
And I want to say up front that as a church, we don't hold to any type of emphatic position on the gap theory because it's speculative. There are some things that we, I mean, we just know are true, like the fact that the Pope is an extraterrestrial who leads the Illuminati. I mean, there's some things we just know are true. This is, I'm, I'm being facetious, of course. But this is one of those things that we just can't know for sure. But I'm sharing it with you because I think it's noteworthy enough that you need to at least be aware of this. And if it is correct, it explains some pretty significant questions that the Bible seems to stir up. And it's going to give you something great to talk about over dinner tonight or with your prayer group this week. The gap theory begins with the original Hebrew language that's used in verse 2. In that original Hebrew, there's a very good scholastic argument that the verse should really be translated, but. The first word should be but. In fact, that's how it's recorded in the Greek Septuagint. But the earth had become without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. The word that's translated became in your Bibles is the same word that's used in Genesis 19.6. I put it on your outlines where it says, Lot's wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. In the original Hebrew, that word became is what's called a transitive verb, which implies an action upon an object. Just as Lot's wife became a pillar of salt, the earth became void and without form. There was an action done upon the earth. The big issue that the original language raises is actually the phrase without form and void. In the original Hebrew, it's the phrase tohu vabohu. Tohu means without form or confused. It speaks of disorder. And bohu means emptiness or, or just voidness. So get this, Genesis 1-2 tells us very literally, that the earth became full of disorder, full of confusion and emptiness. Now hang with me. This is on your outlines. In Isaiah 45, we read this. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. In the original Hebrew, the word that is used there in Isaiah 45 for the phrase not in vain is the word tohu. So track with me here. In Isaiah 45, the Lord says he did not create the earth in disorder. He did not create the earth in tohu. But in Genesis 1-2, we are told that after the earth was created in Genesis 1-1, it became confused and full of disorder. It became tohu. It's not that God created the earth in disorder and then straightened it out. He created it in order in verse 1, and then something happened between verse 1 and verse 2, and it became confused, full of disorder, tohu, in verse 2. Are you with me so far? All right, we'll keep moving. Now in verse 2 where it says darkness was on the face of the deep, 
Some scholars argue that the word darkness does not refer to the kind of darkness we experience at night, but rather a kind of supernatural darkness which makes the air so thick you could cut it with a knife. It's the kind of darkness that chokes out light. That sort of darkness actually exists in the universe. It's exactly what constitutes a black hole. It's an area in space where the darkness is so dense that light cannot actually pass through it or escape it. It's the kind of darkness that rather than just the absence of light can be felt. It's an unnatural darkness. And these same scholars will suggest it seems to be the kind of darkness that is described in Exodus 10 when during the ninth plague in Egypt, the darkness that God sends upon the land, God says it, quote, may even be felt. It was a darkness that could be felt. That's the kind of darkness which was on the face of the deep in Genesis 1-2. It wasn't just dark because God hadn't produced light yet. And what is the deep in verse 2? It's the word which you may know if you've been with us on our studies through Daniel and Revelation. You may know the phrase the deep by its Greek translation, which is the word abusos, which means the abyss. The Bible says that the abyss is the place from where Antichrist will emerge and it's the place which houses the prison of the worst fallen angels and demons. It's talked about in the book of Revelation. So what it's saying is darkness was over the abyss. It's not saying it was dark over the oceans because God hadn't made light yet. It's saying something very, very different, something much, much darker. And when you put all this together, what seems to emerge is a catastrophic event of some kind taking place between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 in that gap, which is why this is called the gap theory. And what seems to be happening is the earth being wiped out between verse 1 and verse 2, and then beginning in the back half of verse 2 and carrying on from there, what is documented is actually the remaking of the earth. So what might have happened? Well, we know that angels were created at a minimum under the umbrella of verse one, when God created the heavens and the earth. We know that God created all the angels, and Jesus seems to be the one that scripture points to as being tasked with creation itself. And so he created someone who would go on to become very problematic, the archangel Lucifer. Below the rank of God, the highest rank in heaven is archangel right now. There are only two archangels mentioned in the Bible, Michael and Lucifer. No, Gabriel is never called an archangel in the Bible. He's clearly important, but he's not an archangel. There's Michael and there's Lucifer. And the Bible tells us that Lucifer was the most beautiful angel that God had ever created. Job 38.7 tells us that the angels were present and watching when Jesus created the universe. So they were there literally cheering and shouting saying, wow, look at that and holy you, God, and as he, as he made all this sort of stuff. They were watching it all unfold. However, the Bible seems to indicate that Lucifer may not have been cheering along. And we're going to encounter him in the Garden of Eden when we get to Genesis chapter 3, probably sometime in 2019. And when we reach chapter 3, Lucifer has already fallen and become Satan, which raises the question, when did he fall? He's created seemingly under the umbrella of verse 1, and by chapter 3, he's fallen. So somewhere in between those two points, Lucifer falls and becomes Satan. 
We know how he fell. The Bible says he chose the path of pride and wanted to make a move to become equal with God in heaven. And he rallied a third of the angels around him in heaven and attempted to take on God, but he was defeated by the archangel Michael and was cast down, what does the Bible say, to the earth where he became Satan. And a quick sidebar, I always like to say this when I get the chance. Jesus and Satan are not two sides of the same coin. They're not the light side and the dark side. They're not yin and yang. The Bible is very clear that Lucifer is an archangel. All archangels are created beings created by God. Jesus created Lucifer. When Lucifer tries to take over heaven, no member of the Trinity even gets off the throne. They just have Michael take out the trash. Michael takes care of Lucifer. That's not even a fight Jesus needs to get into. So not only is Jesus incomparably greater and stronger than Satan, but Michael is a stronger archangel as well. Michael's a warrior angel. Lucifer's a musician. Not surprising it wasn't much of a fight, okay? So, uh, yeah, poetry's not that helpful in battle. So never, ever, ever get confused because sometimes we can pray and we can pray like, you know, there's this battle between Jesus and Satan and it could go either way. No, it couldn't go either way. There's no comparison between God and a created being, Lucifer. There's no power comparison at all. And to even suggest so is is absolutely ridiculous. So I want to encourage you in that. Remember that when you pray. While we don't know exactly when Satan fell, the gap theory suggests that perhaps it happened between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. Perhaps that is the catastrophic event that seems to have taken place between those two verses. Perhaps Satan became jealous of God's plan to create men and women. Perhaps he became jealous of the destiny that God had planned in eternity for his creation, men and women, and so that stirred him on to make his move, his insurrection. Perhaps the original earth was somehow what God put Lucifer in charge of. Perhaps it was his dominion, his throne, so to speak. God's is not the only throne in heaven. It's the greatest, highest throne, but there are other thrones as well. Revelation tells us that. Perhaps the destruction of the world was somehow part of God's judgment against Satan. Donald Barnhouse, a very, very serious, legitimate theologian, suggests that the earth may have lain in that state of waste and darkness for billions of years as the home of Satan and his demons because Satan did not have and still does not have the power to create anything. Would all of this explain why Satan was in Eden in Genesis chapter 3? Was it because he was already on the earth? Was it because he was already what the Apostle Paul refers to him as the God of this world? So what would that original creation, that original earth have been like? What happened on it and and how did it work? I have no idea, no idea, no clue at all. But it makes for some really fun speculative conversations. And and for whatever reason, God doesn't feel that we need to know in this lifetime. And you know what? I'm fine with that. I trust God's judgment. 
And one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to share this whole thing with you is as we work through these first few chapters of Genesis, one of the things I want you to do is to just begin to expand your mind to understand that there are possibilities that are way beyond our imagination that could have unfolded over the course of the first few chapters of Genesis that do not contradict anything in Genesis, but maybe things so far beyond our imagination we don't even know to consider them. As we talk about light in our next study, we're gonna learn some things that are mind-blowing. And so we may find that there are explanations for things in Genesis that we've never even considered, and at a minimum, we should at least get to the place where we say, you know what? I do not know everything that happened around those first few chapters of Genesis. And what I want us to focus in on is the things that we can know for sure because these are the things that God decides to share with us in his word. Even when it comes to the issue of the age of the earth and the literal six days of creation, what has God shared with us in his word? And we'll talk about this more in coming weeks. What he has shared with us is that he created the universe in six days. He didn't share with us what happened in between verse one and verse two, but he did say, I created the universe in six days. So you know what we should hold on to? He created the universe in six days. The things that he has told us that he wants us to know and he wants us to be sure of. And I realize that when it comes to the gap theory, you might say, Jeff, God remade the world after things went wrong with Satan? Come on. Let me me just say this. I personally, I don't have an issue with that conceptually at all. Do you know why? Because we know that's exactly what God's gonna do in the future. We know that Jesus is going to return to the earth. We know that he's gonna make all things new when he does, and we know he's gonna remake the earth. The good news is that he's gonna bind up Satan during that time, and then release Satan at the end so that he can destroy him. That's a plan I really like, by the way. I like that plan. Just a couple of final points on the gap theory. It was originally suggested in 1814 by Thomas Chalmers and it's been supported by some very serious, incredible theologians across the years, including, as I mentioned, Donald Barnhouse, G.H. Pember, G. Campbell Morgan, and others. Sometimes people get excited about the gap theory because of the suggestion that there may have been billions of years in between verse one and verse two and People start thinking, maybe that's when dinosaurs happened and maybe that's why rocks appear to be billions of years old through radiocarbon dating and things like that. The dinosaurs died. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the dinosaurs existed after the fall of man, after Adam and Eve sinned because that's when death came into the world as the result of sin. So when we get to the age of the earth, we're gonna find there's really no way to get around the six days thing. There's no way to make the Bible say something it doesn't actually say. We're not gonna get into it right now, but I put some notes on your outlines that direct you to the two key passages in the Bible which talk about Satan's origins, his fall, and his future. Just in case you're thinking, you know, I'd love to do a Bible study on Satan this week. So now you're set up for that. And so if the gap theory is correct, The earth lay in ruins for what would be best described as an age until until the back half of verse two where we read, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The spirit of God began to brood is the literal word over the waters of the earth. Something was about to start happening. And I love this because even here at the very beginning of the earth as we know it, 
God is coming in and redeeming something that is broken. He's redeeming something that is in darkness and chaos and confusion and brokenness, and he's coming in and he's building something beautiful in the midst of that. And this is what he's done for every single one of us who belong to him. And when you begin to see things like this in the Bible, you know, you begin to realize that the gospel is not just a message. The, the gospel is just who God is. This is just what he does. This is just what God does. He comes into darkness. He comes into brokenness. And he does a redemptive, beautiful, transformative work. That's not just the gospel. That's just who God is by nature. And when we pick things up next week, we'll see him piercing the darkness with light, bringing hope and life into a completely hopeless situation. As you pray this week, as you seek the Lord, as you intercede for others, as you ask the Lord to move on your behalf, be confident. Not because you're great at praying. Be confident because you know the character of the one that you're praying to. You know who he is. You know what he's like. You know what he does because he's done it in you. You know he's the God of the impossible. He's the God who creates out of nothing. And nothing's too difficult for him. So don't forget that. Don't forget that ever. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and, and close your eyes? And Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And thank you that uh, you have ordained and declared certain things that you want us to know with clarity and other things that you don't want us to know. But Lord, we recognize as Job did when you spoke to him after he questioned you, that when it comes to the intricacies of creation and science and the universe, Lord, there, there are things so far beyond us that we know nothing about. And so in these areas, Lord, we, we bow and submit to you as we desire to in every area and declare that you are God and we are not. And you have proven to be perfectly trustworthy. Your word will never return void. Ever. Your word is settled in heaven. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can take you at your word. So Father, we do that this evening. And we bless you as the creator, as the maker of the universe and of each of us. And God, we uh, rejoice and delight in the fact that we were made with purpose by you for the purpose of knowing you and enjoying you forever. And so we ask that you would empower us to fulfill our greatest purpose in this life, which is bringing honor and glory and fame to you as we enjoy you in this life and on into eternity. Help us not to be confused or distracted by any other priorities in life but to make you the greatest priority always above everything in the highest place where you deserve to be, God. We bless you and we honor you. And we ask for the power of your spirit to live lives that bring you honor, Jesus. We love you, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. 
Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.